welcome back to another episode of Not Quite Great Books, a TV podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Daniel Hanley, and joining me on the other line, now that he's established himself as the political theorist who remains after our very <laughs> own multiversal war, it's John McMahon. I'm so honored by this title that's been bestowed upon me that I didn't know was coming and couldn't have guessed, but... I don't know if I've really done enough to earn it. I suppose we'll have to reevaluate at the end of this episode. I feel fine about that. We do we do remain here at the end of Loki. I did it. (laughs) I'm gonna say I did it. I Danielle is of course the more indispensable (laughs) member of this podcast, but I'm nonetheless gonna say I did it. I made it. I'm here. Honestly, there were some times where I didn't think you were gonna make it, so I'm happy that you remained. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Uh, okay, so we are talking about Loki season one, episode six, for all time, always. It's the season finale. Uh, it's directed by Kate Heron, and the written by credits are Michael Waldron for created for TV by, and then Bisha K. Ali, story editor, and Eric Martin, uh, writer. And John, do you want to give us the summary? Short and sweet. Danielle, the clock is ticking in the season finale, which finds Loki and Sylvie on a day with destiny. I feel offended by that summary. <laughs> offended is a strong word. And like, don't like the attempt to joke about Miss Minutes in there. <laughs> That's the only good part of the summary. I don't like the. That's date the one them. good part of the summary. <laughs> but I also like you could say more. Like an unexpected uh, character interlocutor shows up. Like. What will happen? I don't know. Give us some suspense. Well, I mean, this is, I'm assuming, part of the... So it's, it's In some ways, the summary is a debate about spoiler culture in miniature. And I have a, I have a fairly centrist position on spoiler spoilers, surprisingly, so... Like, you don't care? No, like, I, I care, but if I get accidentally spoiled by something, like, that's my own fault, and I'm not going to be mad about it. I think there's a, a way to navigate a summary of this episode that doesn't give away the biggest spoilers. And also like when I watched this for the first time last year at midnight, when it came out or rather at like 3am when it came out, I was expecting Kang or he who remains. Well, we'll probably, we'll probably refer to him as Kang. Kang is never spoken in the episode. It's he who remains, but I was expecting Kang to show up. There had been like, Rumors that Jonathan Majors had joined the cast, like that that he was like in the MCU and whatnot. And this was the I think this was the third MCU series that that came about. And there I was always correct. Yeah, so I think there was always like a oh, are they gonna like like with WandaVision, it's like, are we gonna see Mephisto in the in the last episode? And with Falcon and the Winter Soldier, it's like, oh, are we going to get the Reed, the new Reed Richards in this episode? So, like, the are we going to get the next, like, big, bad or important person was, like, sort of always lurking. And so it was surprising that we got it, but it wasn't surprising who it was. So what then, Danielle, is King slash who remains role structurally in this episode, would you say? Structural role is to just give us a whole lot of information and big exposition vibes from from King. And I will say, Jonathan Majors did a really good job with King. Amazing job. And I mean, I he was in Last Black Man in San Francisco. He was in Defy Bloods, like great. And he's yeah. doing the most with 
not the least, but not a lot more than the least. Not the least. Like, on the one hand, I think Jonathan Majors, like, he just, like, he chews it up, right? It's just, he, it's, and I could... Quite literally, he's, like, gnawing on some apples that magically refresh over time. Oh, when you've got that temp pad, you're just, like, refill, refill, refill. What a great use of a temp pad, actually. Like, I'm sorry, could you just refill my Diet Dr. Pepper ad infinitum? Like, that's what I will take. (laughs) But, like, I could watch Jonathan Majors read the dictionary. Like, I was, I'm interested in the way he's delivering the lines. However, there, like, I think there are parts of this episode that don't quite work for me because for the most part, and I would say I'm maybe the more generous of the two of us when it comes to you. <laughs> as generous as I've been over the this last month and a half and will be over the next month and a half, I think you're still probably right. Yeah, I mean, I'm, like, on board from the jump with these, and then, like, uh, the the critique of these shows for me always comes from a place of, ooh, like, did it do the thing in the way that I think would be the best way to do the thing? And I think maybe your vibe is, why am I watching? <laughs> <laughs> Out of, like, a, my deep, like, friendship love for Danielle, above yeah. all else. <laughs> but I think, like... When we get a little too into explanations is when I'm like, oh, because in general, I'm like, okay, yeah, there are maybe some some holes or some inconsistencies that are not like amazing or not like fully the the done in the best way possible. But like, whatever, I'm still enjoying the episode, the arc, fine. Can I ask you a question about what about the exposition didn't quite work? Was it yeah. more of something for you? And I know, I know the two words you will use to answer the question I'm about to ask, but I will ask it nonetheless in the form I originally conceptualized it. And that is, Danielle, is the problems you had with the exposition given by Kang in this episode more about the specifics of the way that he is explaining the temporal structure of the universe of Loki and like there are holes in the plot or holes yeah. in the scheme or holes in the setup or whatever, or is it more that you are c- concerned about the vibes more than let's tease out every intricate detail of the logic of the universe? Yeah. So I think it's that I am, I'm here for the vibes mm-hmm. and I think part of it for me is that, and, and I recognize that in general, this is sort of like a gap in my own comprehension, like in this show, but in like more broadly in political theory, it's like when space, time and politics, like all crash into each other, that's when I start to like, it starts to be really hard for me to hold on to the pieces. And so I'm more about the vibes because like I can ride on vibes once you start explaining to me that like Elias is doing this and like, this is the, this and here is the, this and like, it has to be this. I'm like, Oh God, now I have to keep track of all these pieces. I'm just, I just wanted to enjoy this. I think I can, I mean, it's nonsensical and ridiculous, but I think I could explain what the show thinks Kang is logic is and how it all works. Have at it, man. Have at it. There were, was once many different Kangs in many different verses. Right. Kang is like, this is going to be a shit show. I'm the one good Kang. So I'm going to establish a structure that enables me to make sure that the different verses are not at war with one another. Yeah. I'm going to do so 
in a way that means that I, as he says at one point, have paved the road for Loki and Sylvie to be here. I have known everything that was going to happen to bring them here. There's a point after which, like, there's something totally new or there's something totally invented. Yeah. It's a creation of free will. Okay. So there's this piece that he makes between the worlds or between the universes or whatever. Yeah. And then he is constructing time and space beyond that point and he's like in charge of the whole thing he weaponizes Elias. that's how he's like tamed these other kings and other worlds and he manages the flow of times and prevents the branches and thus he established the tva and the myth of the timekeepers and all of that and he says that he's the one keeping the world safe and yeah that just makes total sense to me First of all, all, I just want to say congratulations on your first Marvel splaining. Thank you. Oh my God. I I never hated myself more. I think that you got all that right. And all that stuff I understand. Here's the piece that I don't understand. Why are they on an asteroid somewhere floating in space? And how, what is the relationship between space and time? Oh yeah. I'm with you that there's, (laughs) that there's nothing there to explain that. But I am apparently in an alliance with you here. Like, I don't care. Like I'm fine with the just vibes. And as it comes to why are they in the Citadel thing is weird to me. Like let's do a bad mediocre haunted house as the, I think that that or, or that's an Easter egg. I don't know. Yeah. So, and this doesn't, this doesn't spoil anything that that's an Easter egg because Kang in the comics, like, has a fortress, uh, Chronopolis, which is like the fortress of the end of time. time. Yeah. Yeah. Look at you. (laughs) I'm I'm no Daniel Hanley, but I'm enough of a political theorist to know like the most important seven ancient Greek words (laughs) or roots. I was just like talking about being, I was in my sci-fi reading in my sci-fi book club was talking about what it means to be like, what like utopia, like, uh, topos, like all of that stuff. <laughs> My friends were like, nobody cares. <laughs> <laughs> That's me every time when we do the ones, because I do the ones who walk away from Omelas by Ursula yeah. K. Le Guin, the short story every semester to start intro to political theory. And I'm always like, here's a fun word that you can learn and what it actually means. Yeah. This is like week one. And they're like, oh, fuck, I can't believe I got 14 <laughs> more weeks of this. <laughs> Oh my God. So here's here just to like come back to this discussion of like Kang and info dumping on the, on the one hand, I, I do appreciate like the way that it gets laid out after not having a sense of like how time was working and, and exactly the relationship between like authority and time. Like we get a really clear um, like, version of that which you have so nicely laid out for us (laughs) i think like the the issue that i was having is like the info dumping was taking a little bit away from the vibes that i wanted to be experiencing and i and just bathing in like the greatness of jonathan majors listen for me that's a minor critique on like a generally successful six episodes of tv like debatable with you i know but generally successful I I didn't mind the info dumping given that like I had voluntarily watched when watching Loki and like watching the show more, you know, intensively for the podcast or whatever. I didn't mind the info dumping, 
But that's also because I don't think there are, as I've said many a times, like the pathos with especially Loki and Mobius. Yeah. To a lesser extent, Sylvie, like, I don't think is there at all. Even though I don't think there was pathos there, like, yeah. at, in the end between the two of them, really, of being the two of them being Loki and Sylvie, I don't think that's a fault of all of the info dumping or the exposition that came before it. Yeah, I think I think that's right. And, like, something that, I, I, rather, I agree with that. And I think the pathos works for me, which, like, we know that that's, like, yeah. a divide that we have in watching this show. And I think part of what worked is that it, it both worked and, like, raises a new set of questions, which I think this is in the previously on. Loki's, like, whatever the Nexus event was between you two, between Sylvie and Loki, um, Mobius is, like, I think that that could bring the whole place down. And, like, ultimately, the thing that enables them to get into the whole place or, like, where the power source of the whole place is is their connection with with one another. And then we get in there and, and King's like, yeah, I mean, I knew you were coming. So, so it, like, and we'll come to this a little bit later, it sort of, like, undercuts this, the question of, like, power or free will or, like, ability to, to change anything. Like, what ability to change? Loki and Sylvie don't, their connection is, like, sort of rendered unimportant because them being in the presence of Kang is, like, a thing that Kang knew was coming. Right. It's only later something gets opened up. Right. And maybe that's a moment to kind of turn to that in particular because Kang lays out a choice or a series of decisions for Loki and Sylvie to make yeah. about what happens next. Yeah. And if I'm understanding this correctly, and I may not be, he's done. He's like, I've been doing this for like literally all of time, I suppose. Yeah. And he's ready to be done. And I, if I understand correctly, the choices are, he thinks either Loki and Sylvie will kill him and everything falls into pure and total chaos and multiversal war, whatever, or mm -hmm. Loki and Sylvie can run time and temporality in the TVA together and keep like managing the sacred timeline and thus giving them a series of choices about the things that they have been fighting for the past several episodes. Yeah. So I think that you, you've got that right. And so to me, what's interesting about that set of choices, right, is that it is, I let you come here to end me and you either get to plunge everything into chaos or you get to like take up the role that you've been ultimately fighting against or trying to fight against for the last X amount of episodes. What happens? What do they choose? They don't choose. They choose not, none of the above. <laughs> they, they both like crumple up the Scantron. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm a little bit admittedly hazy about exactly what's happening here, but Loki seems to want to take up Kang's offer or at yeah. least consider and talk about it. Yeah. At some point Kang offered Loki or tempted Loki with, you can like go back and win the battle of New York or, and kill Thanos. I don't know, like whatever, dude, um, whatever <laughs> that means. Um, and Sylvie's like, fuck it. We're killing him and, and, and moving forward. 
Sylvie, like in true Sylvie fashion, always chooses violence. <laughs> like always chooses violence. And Loki, when we met Loki at the beginning of this series, I think maybe we would have predicted that he would have he would have actively chosen like let's plunge this let's plunge this bitch into chaos, <laughs> right? It would have been like a I am an agent of chaos, let's like make a mess. And in this, in the exchange around the decisions they get, they are offered by Kang. We see that like he is less impulsive than he once was, which is, I guess, a mark of like character development. That's a generous term, <laughs> Loki. I mean, Loki at one point says something to the effect of "You can't trust, and I can't be trusted." To Sylvie, yeah, at one of like the pauses or like temporary pauses in their fight scene yeah. together. Which I suppose is supposed to be a mark of that character development. Well, I think, like, if if the question that the series has posed to us over and over and over again is what makes a Loki a Loki, right? In this episode, we, we see that, like, it's not... It's either not only one thing that makes a Loki a Loki, right? Like, or we see the ways in which Sylvie is actually not a Loki and Sylvie is a Sylvie right in and then that's the fundamental difference between them Loki can't be trusted and Sylvie is incapable of trusting and like that is a function of the paths that that they have taken as people like in their lives or a function of the paths that have been imposed upon them yeah 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 which I think are are the same thing right definitely definitely and I suppose I give the show credit for this question mark, but there's the moment where Loki does the, I just, I just want you to be okay to Sylvie and they kiss, but like it's a setup from Sylvie and then she pushes him back to the TVA. Yeah. And the fact that the like corniest possible, like standard, most possible reading immediately got undercut question mark. I vaguely support. Well, it's like, I think Marvel likes to do things like that, which is like, give you the thing that's expected and then pull away the, like, the standard trope of it, the boldest that they are in that, right? Like, it's not, so I think your ambivalence around, like, should I give them credit is, makes a lot of sense to me, I guess is the best way to. Look, I tried to be on my best behavior for our esteemed guests last week. So I felt like some Haterade reserves coming out over the next, however long we're recording for. (laughs) I think that's fine. And I think like, listen, like I said, like there are things about this episode that, that, that doesn't exactly work for me. However, like, I think that this is a great finale episode and I love this season of TV, but like upon greater scrutiny, I'm like, Ooh, it's, it's messing up my vibes. <laughs> I mean, what else do we want to say about the Loki Sylvie scene or the, that the dynamic between the two of them, they are cooperating, but in a like bantery jokey way on their way into the mansion or the Citadel. Yeah. And you know, they, or maybe it's just Sylvie are like lunging at trying to kill Kang from almost as soon as they're in the same physical space together. Yeah. And of course, Kang knows that's coming so he can like time teleport out of the way. He's got a temp head. Yeah. He's 
bobbing and weaving. <laughs> I mean, I, I, one of the moments that I did like is when I forget if he yelled it at Loki or Sylvie or both of them, but he just says, grow up. <laughs> it is a good one. It is a good one. Yeah. And I mean, like, I, like I, first of all, like just on a pure, like engagement with the show enjoyment plane, I'm like happy to watch Jonathan Majors interact with um, Sophia DiMartino and um, Tom Hiddleston. Like that, that the dynamic between the three of them is fascinating to me. The info dump stuff was cha- was a bit of a challenge, particularly the Elias stuff. I'm like, I'm not really sure what's happening here, but like in general, enjoying enjoying it. I think like the thing about Loki and Sylvie and their decisions is like they are getting, there are a couple of different moments in this episode where they are offered like choices, right? Like the, the big choices, like you said, are the, are kill me or run the, or run the TVA. And like, there's no in between, but they have some smaller choices, which is like, do you want to like, do you want to go back and like beat Thanos? Do you want to like, they have some smaller choices that are offered to them by Miss Minutes where like, she's sort of like trying to placate them in a way. And so I, I think like something else just worth mentioning, and maybe this transitions us to thinking a little bit more about Kang is like the choices offered to them by Miss Minutes are also like choices that are controlled by Kang. And so like, those choices which defeating Thanos and like and 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 the and the infinity gauntlet and all of that like in the like broader perspective of the MCU is like an a, a like universe changing event but it's it's sort of offered out there like do you want this $5 like do, like do you want to wear a blue shirt today you know it's like offered out there as an afterthought and so i think like it is in end like Ultimately, Kang gets to decide what choices are impactful and which ones are not. And I will say there's one choice that I did find genuinely intriguing that Kang offers them. At one point, he tells them something to the effect of, okay, when if you make this choice to take over my role jointly, you can tell everybody at the TVA who they are and why they're doing what they're doing. And there's this, there, that's an intriguing possibility, mm-hmm. I suppose, among the choices he offers them, or at least the one that I found the most potentially generative. Again, like, that's a thing that we've seen them want really immediately, right? Like, that that's a thing that they feel like will give them power. And to me, like, my reading of that is all of this shows how, like, minuscule any choice that, like, Loki and Sylvie make ultimately will be unless it's the choice uh, it's only the choice of like do you kill me or control or like keep order that that actually matters that makes sense to me and then how does that then impact the way that we evaluate king as a character that is on the one hand controlling everything such that he's the one who as he says at one point led Loki and Sylvie to this point what it does is it allows us to to grasp a little bit the like vast reach of his powers right a thing that has been suggested over and over again by like reference to the timekeepers and reference to like the he who controls it all which is a little bit of how we how we hear about him before we meet him 
in the exchange between Miss Minutes and Renslayer, or like this idea of the sacred timeline, right? There are all of these like big ideas that funnel into this question of control. And then we meet Kang and it's sort of like the, the juxtaposition. And he says in there, like, I'm just flesh and blood, right? Like I'm just a person. And he gives us this history of like himself as a person, like the idea that like this sort of like embodied human could have all this power is at once like, like disjointed from the amount of power he has. And also like kind of fascinating. Right, because he offers the strongest case of what it is at one point Mobius, although not throughout the entirety of the series. Renslayer, I think, although I still have questions about Renslayer, (laughs) as we've discussed on this podcast before. But the logic of the TVA, and and King says this explicitly, he says, you know, up to this point, it's essentially the narrative that the TVA is given. And now he says, I want to diverge from the dogma to explain further what's going on, but what's going on from his perspective is the most extreme, most singularly sovereign version of the TVA's narrative of temporal truth or something. Yeah. It's just, it's not the way that it gets told by other people. The, the pieces that, that he tells that are left off are like, I guess like, the most important or like the, that which renders the official story necessary. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Yeah. It feels like a political theory way to think about it. That's the Plato <laughs> way to think about it. <laughs> More to the point. We <laughs> promise, even though Danielle and I entertained the possibility really that we're not doing Plato again in the game. We wanted to. And so Danielle, this fact that King has con- controlled everything has brought Sylvie and Loki to this point And, has some vision for what the future might hold, regard depending on the decision that Loki and Sylvie make. That control that Kang exercises over it, you pointed out as we started recording, has implications for some of the key questions we've been asking all season long about the show Loki. One of those questions is the what makes a Loki a Loki question, as you noted above. And in this episode, it seems as if Kang is indirectly addressing that question when he says something to you know, the effect of, I've been called many things, but it's not as simple as a name. So what does Kang's an explicit insertion into the story or into the timeline, if you will, how does that affect the what makes a Loki a Loki question? Yeah. So I, I love this question. I love the way that you asked it in thinking about like Kang as inserting himself into a set of questions that, that we're as viewers asking, but I think the show is asking as well. I think that like Kang, so I think that Kang saying it's not as simple as a name, right? It's, it's more complicated than that. Right. Reminds us that like, it's not just one, it's not just about whether or not the character calls themselves Loki, right? Which Sylvie has been, has been like a real hard line against. Like, I am not a Loki. I am Sylvie. Yeah. And I think throughout the, our like podcasts on this, we have treated Sylvie as a, a version of Loki, right? Uh, or like not only as a distinct other character like we've treated them as as having like a blurring and i think what kang is saying is like that blurring like that's that's important like and and that's like 
I think if he were to be here in this conversation, like it's not as simple as a name is like, it's not just about what you call yourself. It's about who you are. The other thing that I'm thinking about here in just, and this is a little bit more of a meta point, but I'm going to, I'm going to take the opportunity to, to throw it out there. Cause I'm usually so opposed to making meta points. <laughs> But I think also, like, this is a meta point both about, about, like, what we call ourselves and about, like, how we, um, how we fit ourselves into boxes. It's not just about the, like, categories that are available, but also the ways in which our, like, very existence forces the evolution of categories, right? And I think, like, a generous way to think about some of these ideas and think about like what makes a Loki a Loki and is it just about being named Loki or is it about how you act or is it some ver- some combination of all of those things? Like, Is it being I, or becoming is what you're uh, saying. Exactly. I, really, I, was, <laughs> I was literally sprinting towards this idea of becoming. And I think like there is a way to read – Right. There's a way to read Sylvie and Loki's relationship and the evolution of their relationship throughout the series, which I know like isn't the most successful for all of us here on this call. (laughs) But there's a way I think there's like we can read it from one perspective, which is they are they are becoming together. Right. There's like there's an overlap happening or like a way in which they are forming their own assemblage to bring some of the language from last time. Yeah. And then I think this episode says, like, we can also, we also can see the way that the assemblage gets torn apart by having, like, by working towards different, different goals. Can I make make an alternative meta point? Sure. Right. Kang is the ultimate fill-in for an author or for a creator of a story themselves, Mm -hmm. right? Who has controlled the narrative, the timeline, the characters, their decisions, and at the same time can understand themselves to be offering their characters decisions and might approach that in the way that at a certain point, the story starts writing itself, or there's the point at which I reach in which the characters have to make their own decisions that feel less determined by the author. I know we're the author has died and all of that and so on and so forth. But I nonetheless think that that's, that that's happening here. Now, do I think that necessarily is, what's happening with the MCU. Like, I think, no, I think that that's more, more corporate driven than like author story driven in some ways. Um, So I, so the only pushback, so I I just want to push back on that last point a tiny bit, not fully, because I think you're right. Like a lot of this is profit driven. (laughs) (laughs) Um, um. A lot of this is profit driven. However, part of what comics try to do is to open new stories. Part of what they also do is like retread the same stories over and over again. We've literally gotten 7 million versions of Spider-Man or like, you know, there are a bunch of different versions of Batman. Like, like you get, you get the same character being written by different people. And so sometimes the story is the, the beats are being replayed. But you also get the sort of like pushing out into new worlds and thinking about how new characters are coming into contact with one another. And like, you know, uh, just thinking about like Planet Hulk, comic book universes. So not the MCU, but the like the comic book part of this offers is like 
new ground and new space to tread upon, right? And so, yes, the MCU is, like, mobilizing that in part for profit, but also, like, I think that we have to at least recognize a little bit, like, taking some chances in there, too. Not everything that exists in, like, the, in the, in the Marvel Comics universe is going to be, like, the most profitable or is going to be easy for people who are not in that universe deeply to understand. And yet, like, they're, they're pulling pieces of it, playing around with pieces and, like, seeing what happens. And so I think, like, there's a, there's the profit part and there's also a creativity part. And there are places where those things are directly overlapping and there are places where they're not fully overlapping and just like recognizing that like those pieces can coexist without being necessarily co-constitutive at all times. That's more generous than I would be, but fair enough. Um, And I mean, it's, it's also notable that you, uh, started answering that question with regards to the comic books as opposed to the cinematic universe. And I think those have two similar, but not exactly the same relationships like to profit. And in some ways I was thinking, even thinking like I used the word corporate earlier, partly to think about Marvel as a capitalist firm, but also just to think about the structure of the storytelling and the actual thing, ways that these, properties to use a term that is very telling that that is what these are called are made right. That it is less. There is a showrunner or co-showrunners or whatever who are making a series of decisions that there's the additional Marvelness of it all, Kevin Feige of it all and others that is more interventionist than other forms of like making TV or movies. Yeah, I mean, I would say if we're gonna if we're gonna use the parlance of of international relations, I feel like it's not interventionist; it's preemptive. So, like the way that this the way that this stuff usually works, and like not not only, but the general structure of this is like these are all the uh, the stories that that it's possible. Like these are all the storylines, the characters, the this or that, that is possible for us to tell. Like, what do you want to do in there? Because like, there's some like complicated, I won't go as far as to say interesting, but there's some complicated licensing stuff. So not all the characters are under Marvel's purview. And so like, there's a version of Loki that probably has characters that like Sony has control over so that we can't tell this story with those characters and this, this and that. Um, and then there's also the fact that like, so Kang is an interesting character because like within the comics, there are a ton of variants of him, but the version of he who remains that we get in this show actually, I think is the combination of two of those. I would, I would say that that's like a way to simplify something that's more, that's even more complicated. Um, and sometimes those simplifications are functional, like oh, we need to make something more simple because our viewers don't know the the whole universe of ideas. And sometimes, like you said, they're like coming from above not to like make more palatable for viewers, but because like this is the story we want to be telling right now. Mm -hmm. I think like there was a little bit more freedom in this show because there isn't a ton of like Loki in the MCU actually that there's like way more Loki in the comics to play around with. Um, But presumably in terms of kind of where either, I guess there's a season two of Loki that is happening is going forward or where the MCU is going. Like the Kang multiverse situation is 
like the new major problematic of the next it's a, question mark? Or in- it's an open question. There's like some speculation that Kang is the next Thanos, the next big bad. There's also a question like is maybe it's not Kang, but it's but Kang is like uh, a complication sort of in the way that like uh, Ultron was what Ultron like complicates the universe, but isn't ultimately like the big bad that we're fully fighting against the whole time. I know exactly what you mean. I know <laughs> there are thousands of listeners. Um, yeah, it's, po- I guess the, uh, the TLDR version of this is it's possible that Kang is the next big bad. It's also very possible that he's not, he's like a bit of a, uh, a MacGuffin or something like that. An agent of chaos, if you will. I will. (laughs) I know you will. (laughs) So I have a question for you, and then I know you have a question for me, and I think this is maybe a good way to wrap up our general uh, discussion here, which is you have been quite vocal about not... How generous I am in my reading of Loki. Oh my god! I, I like it's. I, we need to finish this because I can't hear you say that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> we got six weeks to go of that line, so sparkle it. I know, but I will feel less angry about it with Moon Knight, <laughs> yeah. um, and like angry in the best possible way. Yeah. So. You have been quite vocal about how generous you're being. I would phrase it as you have been quite vocal about how much distaste you have for this. So I'm wondering, like, what would make you like this more? Okay. I'm going to give you the answer that's going to annoy you the most first. And then we'll work our way to a better understanding from there. How's that sound? (laughs) That sounds perfect. Okay. So the thing that uh, maybe most would have done this is Sylvie stabs Kang universe explodes cut to black we're done mcu over period okay well that's not possible and didn't happen so okay like short of (laughs) short of deleting the entire mcu what would what would have made this more enjoyable for you along the way here's the more serious list I think that there needed to be more character development, particularly pathos and the relationships and supposed emotional catharsis catharsis moments of the characters and their relationships that was not dependent on ties to the MC. And and that's that's for Loki in particular, but more broadly, the relationships that Loki has with other characters, the Loki-Mobius relationship most of all, but like also in a different way, the Loki-Sylvie relationship. But a lot of the moments where they're supposed to be these major resonant affective moments, I think are contingent on being internal to the MCU. Interesting. So like, because that first sort of like reveal in episode one where Loki watches his death, because all of that is like stuff that needed to be explained to you why it's relevant or important. Like that sets up the contingency that like then is frustrating for a lot of the rest of the show. Yeah. I think that's why I think that's a big part of it. Yes. No, that makes sense to me. Um, Okay. If we keep, if we keep the Loki notes going, I, I am personally more interested in the version of Loki that doesn't have the quasi redemption arc that this season of TV grants him. And to me, the more, aesthetically generative version of Loki or more interesting version of Loki is the one who is like ready to at a drop of a hat, take Kang's offer 
and every like shit hits the fan after that and goes awry as a result of him making that chaotic decision. I think there's a version of this show. So one, I don't think we're ever going to get a Disney plus show that doesn't have some kind of like redemption arc. That just feels like the business we're in. However, like I think there is a version of the show where we get a redemption arc possibly, but also we get more of a like contemplation of whether like whether he should go down that path, like what that looks like, like that there's more weight assigned to that decision. Like, yeah, it's too easy for that to happen in this show for me. That's like a bare minimum. I would still have my fair share of complaints, but like as a bare minimum that's realistic in the MCU, that would be it. Yeah, and I think like that's also consistent with the the Loki that we have been with. Like it's only a few episodes ago, which is ultimately a couple of days ago in this space time, whatever, that he was turning his back on the TVA to like follow Sylvie, and like whether that was just a ruse or not, right? Like, he, like that's still there. So I'm I'm with you that I think like that would have. That would have complicated the show in an interesting way. It's kind of like in Felicity where she like chooses Ben over Noel. Never watch Felicity. Oh, you're missing out. (laughs) All right. I've got, you want more of my list? Yeah, of course. So also on the list are, I'm wondering if there are more intriguing things to do with time and temporality that are not just, oh, the whole universe is at stake yet again. Like (laughs) that just seems like that's what you do when you're making an MCU property of this scale. Like it has to be the multiversal war, but surely there are more interesting things, more intriguing things, less obvious things to do with time and temporality. If one can play with time and temporality in the way that one can within the world of Loki. So what you're saying is they should have hired you as a temporality uh, advisor. Absolutely not. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I mean, I think, uh, I think that that is right though. I will say like the temporality stuff is the stuff that like most confuses me. (laughs) But I, I wonder though, if there are ways to do temporality things that are not jokey and not, the whole universe is going to collapse in on itself or the multiverses will go to war with one another that would make it less confusing at the same time that it did something more aesthetically interesting or creative. Yeah. Or even if that was where we were going, we got more like layers in between. Yeah. And I mean, and, and like ultimately this is also part of the consistent theme of this is an MCU show, Mm -hmm. but like, the stakes don't always have to connect back to like the battle of New York. <laughs> yeah. And I think that that is like, that that's a, a thing for me where in general in like post end game MCU. So like basically in, in phase four, like every, there's so much like connecting back to the battle of New York and I'm Interest. This is part of what I like about Moon Knight, where we don't have there. There isn't that connection, where it's just like let's just like explore weird, random things. It's kind of like I mean, it's it's a similar thing to the Star Wars problem, right? Which is like if we're always only dealing with the Skywalkers, then like we don't get any other. Like, we don't get Broom Boy. 
from from uh, the Last Jedi, and like I'm interested in Broom Boy. Yeah, and kind of more broadly, I don't have a more necessarily specific version of this, but the problem of the stakes, both for the characters and for the universe or multiverse, mm-hmm. like they're just not they're not interesting to somebody who's not with like into the MCU initially. Like I, I there just yeah. need to be other kinds of stakes than than those that exist within the show, which is a way to like think together the can't we do something other than multiversal war and yeah. overly simplistic redemption arc for Loki. So to me, what that is saying is that finale episode needs to be different where the finale episode needs to not be multiversal war. Yeah. Like, yeah. right. Yeah. Because like, if the finale episode is not like, well, we're descending into chaos. If you kill me, the stakes that have been set up in other moments in the show, like become important again. Sure. Yeah. I think that's a good way to put it. Yeah. And then I have two minor notes. Um, it should be actually funny and not just Marvel banter funny. Okay, well. And there's just, like, a lot of stuff that we just can't do, and I'll get into some of those things later. Like, okay. just cut the cringiest 20% of every episode, maybe 40 50% of every episode, and figure out what remains after. Okay, I'm interested for when we we get into more of that. I think, like, your response to it is more extreme than mine, but not, like, totally off base. All right, so now then, those those are my notes. Anything you want to comment on as a a general response to that before I reverse the question back to you? Yeah, I mean, I think the only thing I'll say, and this goes back to something we talked about in our first Loki episode, is, like, you're just not the audience for this show. We asked a question about who the audience is for this show. I think, like, the way that we've tackled these episodes, the Marvel splaining, like, like the, like, in thinking about it, like, you're not the audience for this show. And, and I don't think that that's a bad thing, right? Like, I think it's okay. I really enjoy the show. There are pieces of it that I don't love all the time, but I really enjoy the show. And I enjoyed the, like, way in which it opens the multiverse, because this is the first show that we, like, get the multiverse in. This is the first, like, Marvel property, the MCU property that we get the multiverse in. And, like, that in the moment when it happened was so fun for me and it's still really fun for me. And I think it's like, it's okay that you're not the audience for the show. Yeah. Like there have to, we have to draw, draw, draw our arms around it. It can't sure. be everyone. Let me make one more point about the multiverse that that simul. And this is not an original point, right? Any scores of critics have made this point that the multiverse simultaneously eviscerates any stakes because it's just like, well, there's some other verse in which the thing that happened didn't actually happen while at the same time, overly amplifying the stakes to the multiverses are at war with one another. The implications or the significance of things that happen are both too significant and not significant enough at the same time. Yeah. Which is an interesting way to think about it because at least the way that like phase four has developed because this is we're, this is a year old at this point. The multiversal war is like not the only thing that's that's going on. The opening of the multiverse opens like other for me fun and interesting questions. Like we can have three Spider-Mans at once and bring the meme to life. Obviously that. <laughs> or like like to me more interestingly and I just watched this over the weekend but like in Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness like 
Wanda can dreamwalk into into her own selves, like in other places in the multiverse, and that like like has implications for her particular character. And like, I'm interested in the dreamwalking of it all, and the like. How are how are different different strands of the timeline uh, uh, and different timelines in the multiverse connected to each other, and how do they? impact one another like that's something that's interesting like yeah the spider-man mean fine but like how do these things like interact and then mess each other up is like a more interesting question for me and we only get that question because like because we get the multiverse in loki and that's not like none of the properties i suspect that the end of phase four is going towards a multiversal war or some bigger and that was like i was like be honest our like the ultimate stakes of this are going to be multiversal war. Oh my God. I feel like such a broken record, but I'm going to feel like that broken record. I feel like the way that you're reading this, and I think it's a perfectly fine and like understandable way to read this is like the only thing that's important in tragedy is, is the plot. It's the, no, that's not, that's not the way I'm reading it though. But like, but that's a little bit of like, so the, the stakes, right. Of, of like being multiversal war and all of that, like that is, the overarching arc. And, and again, like that is a perfectly legitimate way to think about what is happening in these various properties. But what I'm saying is like, when you do, when you are only like frustrated by where it's going, you are like not able to engage or enjoy the, the pieces that make it possible to get there. I would, on a very high level, totally agree with that point, like a thousand percent witness an hour and a half of me saying it's about the vibe, the aesthetic vibes of it all, and they should be the right vibes, but it's about the aesthetic vibes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The problem with the MCU is ultimately goes back to the audience question that the vibes, most of the aesthetics, the humor, and the character development, many of the other things that are not absolutely dependent on plot arc, like yeah. none of those are if none of those will work for somebody who's not into the MCU, then like the only the easiest thing for an outsider to connect to is some kind of arc or some kind of what right. are the stakes questions. It's like it'd be I I wouldn't care about that if like I was able to connect to some of the other layers or levels. Yeah, I think what I'm positing is that because you're an outsider, the thing that you can grasp onto is the arc. So it makes it difficult to to engage and uh, any of these other pieces. What I'm positing is that there's also like the reciprocal is also true, which is that like it is there's also an intentionality there. Okay, well I'm frustrated by the arc and therefore I can't see any value in the pieces either. And I think both of those things can be true at the same time. Yeah. Um and and that's why I'm calling you Aristotle. I was going to say, I, I'm I, not, I, I'm I feel not, like not. this is like a harsher, like I'm an not. even harsher read of when I was accused of being Plato. No, 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 no. But I, I do, I do think like it is, I think that your, your analysis of yourself is correct, which is like the arc is the one thing that you're, you're able to grab onto because like you don't have the context and one, you don't have the context and two, there isn't enough like, development other than the connection to the context. Like I, I think that's a fair way to put it. Yeah. I think there's a version of watching these that is less frustrated by the lack of context. 
And I would say, like, my mom is a version of that. My mom has no idea what's happening in the MCU. Like, literally none at all. But, like, can still go and enjoy, like, the Spider-Man movie. And I will say part of this for me is a problem of I don't know if I – I don't know if I can watch a Marvel show twice, right? Like, I enjoyed Loki way more the first time around, in part because I could live just no ambition, just vibes. Yeah. I mean, I guess, like, we'll we'll put that to the test next week <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> literally right. so i need to ask you the flip version of this question okay um because i feel like i've been, been grilled <laughs> um, by the end of that in ways i wasn't quite ready for so what would it take Sorry. what would it take i love it what would it take danielle for you to have not liked loki okay so i've been thinking about this it would take a lot because i really do like the show and i think a couple of things one would have to be like really flat from Sophia DiMartino and uh, Owen Wilson. Like, I, the, like, we can debate whether or not those characters are well-written, but I think, like, the people playing all these characters it, are all really talented actors. The, and so, the faults of the show are not, do not lie with the actors themselves. Exactly. So I think, like, one thing would be to have made way worse choices actor-wise Um, I think also I am as maybe you can, you can get a sense of like already in this discussion, I am not a hard sci-fi fan. Like I don't want calculations. Like I don't want, like, I don't, I don't want to know how things happen. I just like, I want the vibes. So I think something else, like more info dumps on stuff that like we should just be able to hand wave away. Like, that would really, that would take me out of it. I think all the things that would would make me like this less are things that would take me out of, like, the, like, cinematic experience of the show. Fair enough. I have no no dragging of you for that answer. And continuing my being exceptionally generous themes... No, this time I'm, I'm, I don't know, I need to, I don't need to try as hard. Oh my God, I feel so bad. I'm so mean. Oh, <laughs> That's not true. I feel bad about being this mean to you. <laughs> to the sisters in the group chat, it's okay. No, the sisters in the group chat are mean to That's me. That's very true. I've seen the evidence. Selectively presented, but I believe it. But then also sometimes I mean to myself, like today I had a read where I was like, my toxic trait is searching for every ride or run where the instructor plays Harry Styles. And then Tori was like, I've never seen a more accurate representation of you as a person in my life. I'm with Tori on this one. (laughs) I mean, it's true. But I like, that was a self-read. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Oh my God. Okay. Let's get it. Let's jump into Marvel's planning. I think it's pretty quick this week. Pretty quick this week. You've already done some Marvel splaining for us. I know. Look at me. So question number one in Marvel splaining, where does Renslayer think she's going when she goes through this like time portal after the end of like her climactic like conflict with Mobius? Yeah. I mean, I don't know where she thinks she's going. I think this is like something that I think the show doesn't do great is like give us the Renslayer backstory. There's some backstory from the comics, but like none of it jumps to mind. It's like, Oh, this is obviously where she's going okay. somewhere where Kang is sending her. Um, yeah. And she says she's going in search of free will, which is maybe a joke at Mobius's expense or like a burn on his expense because yeah. they argue about it at the end. But yeah, obviously yeah. I don't have any guesses. 
Yeah. Um, again, like it's a, a little bit of a misstep with Renslayer. Big misstep. Okay. Question number two. And this is more of a, I actually want to guess at the answer and okay. Danielle can tell me if I'm correct. Yeah. So we, what happens is that Sylvie creates a, uses the temp pad, creates a little time portal to shove Loki through it because they are kissed and they kissed and he's distracted or whatever. Yeah. Do I have it correct that where Loki has been sent to is actually like a different timeline multiverse something of the TVA and not the TVA that he and Sylvie came from? Yeah, he thinks that he's in his TVA. That's why he goes looking for Mobius. And then when he the interaction with Mobius is like, mm, no, you're an analyst, right? Like Mobius doesn't know who he is. And then we see those those statues of Kang. Yeah, so Kang is in charge openly of the TVA in this alternate timeline. Yeah, so this happens after um, Kang is like, well, that's the that's the end. Like, I don't know what happens from here on out. So this is, I think, us... We're supposed to understand that, like, this is... Kang chaos. This is Kang chaos, and we also see the, like, uh, the, like, crazy branches on the the monitor. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So I'm... I've become less Marvel-splain dependent as the season has gone on, so I can't wait to have no clue what the fuck is happening in Moon Knight (laughs) next week. To be fair, I have very little clue what's happening in Moon Knight, too, which is, like, what's fun about it for me, anyway. Okay. Let's, this is our last Easter egg hunt for a Loki. How sad. John has a winning record at the moment. Oof. He got it's three close. wins and two losses. Close. It's close. We're, we're going for, I'm hoping to break even. And John is hoping for a winning record. Exactly. Okay. So I'm going to give you three things that happened in this episode. You have to guess which one is the Easter egg. So I shouldn't play Easter egg hunt wrong. Like I did last episode. Yeah. Correct. Which, which I was editing earlier today. And like, I, I thought that I played Easter egg hunt wrong last week and it's confirmed. I did misunderstand the segment we've literally done four times before. It's okay. Listen, this stuff. It's and that Danielle explained at the beginning of every conversation. <laughs> on every uh, Easter egg hunt. I think it's fine. I'm ready now. Okay. So the first one is Kang is eating an apple. Okay. So Kang eating the apple okay. as an Easter egg. The second one is um, the different timeline that Loki is sent into where, like, uh, he meets up with Mobius and B-15, the one we were just talking about. Okay. That's the, the second potential Easter egg. And the third one is Miss Minute's suggestion that Loki take the throne of Asgard. One of those is a specific reference to something that happened in the MCU. Okay. So I, unless Danielle's playing like a mind trick on me, I think that rules out number one, because my sense is that there has been no Kang in the MCU specifically, other than Loki. So I'm going to rule out number one. Okay. So two is the different time and Loki is sent into. I'm going to guess that we don't 100% have enough context clues for that different timeline that happened at the end of the episode. So my final guess is that, Miss Minutes telling Loki that to take the throne of Asgard is the Easter egg. Very nice. Wow. Well done. What an accomplishment. And, a, and a, good, a good use of logic. 
rare in my life. So I got to take them when I can find them. We'll take the logos. We'll take it. (laughs) Amazing. Okay. So you are triumphant in the Easter egg hunt for this season. Let's get into gloss. You've got some stuff you want to talk about in gloss, John. (laughs) One of the cringiest things I have ever seen in any moment of pop culture, TV or movies ever in my entire life is in general, this opening sound montage is they're depicting the travel to the end of time. Do this all day universe. And like, I'm sure there's, you know, like 20 different clips from different MCU shows and movies or whatever that are happening. And then there's a sound montage of, I looked this up so that I could bring this in an informed way to the podcast. Like, not even sentence-long clips of Neil Armstrong, Malala Yousef, Greta Thunberg, Maya Angelou, and Nelson Mandela. And, like, those are the clips, and they, they're just playing. There's no reason that they're playing. It's, Danielle, it's, like, woke, liberal, meaningless, neoliberal, virtue-signaling starter kit over here. And I hated it so much. <laughs> I was laughing because... I had recommended you watch the show last summer and I had forgotten about this part. And then when I watched the, the, the intro, I was remembering how angry you were the first time we watched this. And so I was like, Oh God, this is definitely going to come up on the podcast. I no notes. I agree. Like this is very, I don't find a lot of stuff in the MCU cringy, but this was very cringy. And not cringe is in I'm cringe, but I am free, but cringe is in they should have cut this out. Like somebody should have said, this is a horrible idea. Yeah, 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 yeah. We, we we actually didn't need for it to have real world implications. <laughs> it's fine. It's the, and it's the absence of real world implications. <laughs> like there's there's no like Maya Angelou inspired anything in Loki or the MCU, right? Or it's not a parable about climate change. So thus Greta Thunberg makes sense to include in there. It's literally just random sound clips of people that liberals depoliticize. No notes. <laughs> Agree. I'm, I'm with you on this one. I, I'm not even going to try that. I could go on about And I, I, I thought about, and maybe I should, I should like make you defend it, but that would be too mean. Honestly, you're too nice for that. (laughs) I'm sure I could, I could sell snake oil to a snake oil salesman. So I'm sure I could figure out a defense, but like, it's not worth it because like, this is actually, this is not just a bad choice for the episode. It's like a bad look for the MCU. Yeah. It's objectively bad. So from things that are objectively bad in the MCU to things that you simply find frustrating (laughs) in the MCU. Um, let's talk a little bit about Mobius and Renslayer. Yeah, I still think that the show did not explain what Renslayer knows and what Renslayer's motivations are. Yeah. And that, I think, prevents this final moment between Mobius and Renslayer from having anything more in it, in it or to it than bad jokes and bad banter. Yeah, and I think, like, it wouldn't have taken much more to just give a clear version of what Renslayer knew. I want to know, did she know about the timekeepers? Did she not? Is she lying to people? Does she actually know? Like, it wouldn't have been too difficult to just make it clear what she knew. The ambiguity is actually like, it muddies the waters in a way that's not 
like generative in any way. Right. Cause all we get is Renslayer saying, well, what if it's a necessary lie that everybody was, you know, taken because they were variants from their actual lives. And yeah. what if there's no sacred timeline and there's just chaos and Mobius keeps asking about free will, free will, free will. And then Renslayer either genuinely means this and, or is joking at Mobius's expense when she's like we said earlier, she proclaims that she is going uh, in search of free will as she pieces yeah. out. It would be either funny or not if we knew that that's what she was doing. Correct. If, even if there was like a department of free will, right? Like something ridiculous, like, it, like we don't have enough information to be able to appreciate that move. Yeah. Yeah. I, well, and that gets us into the next thing, thinking a little bit about free will in this episode. Mm-hmm. I have to admit this is another one of those like political theory concepts where I'm like, if I think too hard about it, I convince myself that it is a wor- a set of words that don't exist together. <laughs> I believe that. Um, I mean, what, what else is political theory if not that? Whether or not free will exists, the minute you're thinking about it, it existing, like it doesn't exist, right? Like there's, there's just like, I don't know, like tripping over myself trying to think about free yeah. will. Yeah, I mean, I think that this is... Notable because it comes up both in the context of Mobius and Renslayer and then also in the context of Loki and Sylvie with regards to Kang, because Kang makes it very explicit. Up to this point, you have been on a path that I have fully developed and articulated, and I knew exactly what was going to happen. I knew you were both were going to come here, et cetera, et cetera. And then he keeps making jokes about, and now in full honesty, this is a fresh start. This is where there are actual consequences of free will. So Kang is trying to say, like, there is has not, not been any free will up to this point, and now there is for the two of you, which leads yeah. to him getting stabbed. Is the end of free will always violence? Is that how or, I mean, and this is, and this is the thing is that if one accepts that the sacred timeline is necessary, then free will equals chaos equals violence, death, destruction. And this is one of the strange things to me of what the finale is doing. I'm sure there's a more generous reading of this, but the TVA is just bad, seemingly more or less throughout the entirety of the show Loki. And yet the consequences of disrupting the TVA's operations are in fact the bad consequences that the TVA or, or Kang were warning against. Yeah, and and Kang in that in the part in the episode where he is like posing that like choice that we talked about earlier to Loki and Sylvie, like you could either take over or you kill me, and then like multiversal war. But then like the end of that for him is like, but I've been through that, and it always ends up that like I end up back here in control. So it's like. You can have free will, but also there's never free will. Like, I don't know. I don't, I don't love it. For the show to raise the question as much as it does, but not have a coherent position or exploration doesn't quite work. Yeah. I mean, I think if, if we were to offer, and by we, I mean me, (laughs) (laughs) generous reading of like the show, raising the questions and not answering them like that maybe that is part of that is part of this a more complex view of the universe is that we get a lot of these questions but we don't get a lot of answers and like in opening these doors but not closing them like it's it's 
things that we can explore going forward. But that's like a really generous reading of it. You are correct that there is only one of us on this podcast willing to be that generous <laughs> of a reader. Uh, do you want to tell us about the one good joke? Yeah, you there was actually one good joke this episode. And okay. it is Loki and Sylvie are bantering with Kang. And at one point, Kang starts singing Amen in like a very like fancy singing voice. And it ended up being a good joke. I think this like falls into the, I'm not sure if John knows what a joke is. Yeah. But also I agree. That was funny. (laughs) All right. The only good joke in the episode. (laughs) I'd also like to lodge an additional complaint about this episode (laughs) that draws on previous conversations we've had. Okay. Danielle, can you explain to me, especially after, as you pointed out earlier, the character of Kang proclaims that he is flesh and blood. Sylvie can like stab a long dagger straight into his chest with zero repercussions, zero blood, zero anything, including at least two different camera perspectives on the body of Kang. No, I mean, PG 13. (laughs) I mean, it's like PG. (laughs) Yeah. I like, uh, it's just like, you know, the standard critique that's made is like particularly egregious in this instance. It's so funny because it's like not, I think I'm so used to watching these shows and not, and not having blood that when, when there is blood, I, I, I get like a little bit shaken. So I think, which just supports your point. Okay. And then I have, I know this isn't on the list, but it came to me a couple minutes ago. Okay. Danielle, is that, is there any sort of greater symbolism that you want to ascribe to Kang constantly eating and regenerating these apples? Like, is it an Adam and Eve thing or not? I mean, I think like we're meant to, to read it as such. We're meant to like, we're meant. To, so I, that's how I want to read it. And I want to read not only the eating of the apple as like the act that sort of like, leads to the fall and leads to like humanity stain and all of that. But I think it's also significant that like Kang is in charge and just continues to eat the apple. Like, and I think like that he presents as male Mm -hmm. is, is like significant in that reading too. That, like, it's only evil if and when he says it's evil. And he doesn't say it's evil. And he consistently engages in it in such a way that, like, kind of throws it in our face. Yeah. And one of the reasons I ask is that, as you know, I'm having trouble exactly when this episode is going to be recorded. But when the movie Men came out and there's mm-hmm. a whole, like, Apple Eve so oh, yeah. references to, so, to it. So okay, my mind. I see. Yeah, well, no, that I think- happened more recently in the timeline of the recording than the timeline of the releasing. <laughs> yeah. It's okay. I think like in the timeline of the releasing, it's like in the summer. Sure. It's fine. Exactly. All right, Danielle, who's our minor character of the week? Minor character of the week is Miss Minutes. Uh, we love sure. Miss Minutes, voiced by Tara Strong. Do we? Like, Question mark? I mean, we love the character of Miss Minutes as voiced by Tara Strong. I don't think we love the character of Miss Minutes as like a, like, 
pretend agent of chaos (laughs) (laughs) in the show. I also like, I think we talked about this a little bit last time. Like I do enjoy the like Miss Minutes as a cartoon, but like sentient, like, and the, the like question mark of all that, like that's a kind of chaos I can get behind. (laughs) What do you, what do you think about Miss Minutes in this episode? Uh, I think it's, as you've pointed out, oh, helpful. This is actually, oddly enough, one of the characters whose motivations do become clearer. If we are finding trouble with Renslayer as understanding her motivations from the problem from the show itself, with Miss Minutes, we get a little bit of that here, or at least some clarity. And also, of course, I'm thinking back to our discussion from last episode with Lily about what are what is the purpose of Miss Minutes? What is she if she is the proper pronouns to be using? Up to what does it mean to have like this animated character be a kind of agent of nefariousness, if not necessarily chaos? And I guess then the version of that here in this episode is what does it mean for an, an animated character to be working with, for, on behalf of Kang? Yeah, I mean, like, what does it mean for any any character to be working if, for, on behalf of Kang? And yeah. the fact that Miss Minutes seems to be the one that has the most information that also like has the most contact with Kang and like she was the one who knew he existed before mm-hmm. anybody else, right? Mm-hmm. Like, and that she and was actively working against Renslayer, finding more information about him, but Renslayer's also kind of knows about him. Yeah, it's like so in the comics, Renslayer, I believe, is like Kang's girlfriend. So like in the comics, Renslayer does know about about Kang. And, like, part of what's confusing about all of this to me is, like, again, are we meant to, are we meant to think she knows or not? Comics readers are going to be like, of course she knows. She, like, was dating him. But, like, in the show, it's not Kang. It's he who remains. So, like, maybe maybe she's not. And, and also the Miss Minutes of it all, like, it all just complicates it. Yeah. Right. But the character it. of the week, goodbye to Miss Minutes. <laughs> Goodbye to Miss Minutes. We'll maybe miss you sometime. <laughs> we'll miss your 16 face clock. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> really drives me nuts that it's not 12. Anyway. Uh, literally TIL right the second I learned that there was more than 12 on her face <laughs> clock. Amazing. Uh, let's get into politics in the MCU. Sure. So uh, first entry in this is yours. So I'm going to have you take it away. Okay, so I can't believe I'm making this this seriously, but <laughs> so Kang is technically I was taking You're the thing this seriously. <laughs> so Kang is talking about his various expositions, and he talks about how he like tamed Eliath and then weaponized Eliath to put an end to the first multiversal war or whatever multiversal war he is describing to Loki and Sylvie with the, like, Mercury figurines. Yeah. (laughs) And there's something about the way he talks about Elias and the weaponization of Elias and the fact that Elias seemingly has the ability or potential to destroy an entire universe or destroy an entire place or something Mm -hmm. that, to me, had some resonances with, like, 
deterrence, mutually assured destruction logic with nuclear weapons, right? We can tame and then weaponize nuclear power, which is simultaneously a power to destroy the entire planet that we say we are going to put into existence to prevent the destruction of the planet. So there's something about the logic that is paralleling, I think, of Kang and Elias and, like, deterrence. Yeah, I mean, like... And there's definitely a Doctor Strange log, an obligatory Doctor Strange log doomsday machine reference in here as well, lurking around. Fair. Listen, I think that, like, you're laughing at yourself for taking this too seriously, but that's exactly (laughs) what this segment is asking us to do. And also, like, I... So we had Lily Gorin on last episode, who has who's one of the co-editors on this volume, Politics and the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And there are certainly people in that volume who are writing chapters about like the relationship between like the MCU and nuclear weapons. I don't think any no one is writing this about Loki, but like they're they're much more writing about like the the properties that have actual like physical weapons and like the allegories that it's for. But I don't think that this is like a foreign point in the MCU. And I think the idea that like technology can, is both put into the world like by humans and then end weaponized and tamed by humans, like that humans are doing all of that, that there is something there. I, I think the parallel that you're drawing makes a lot of sense. Great. Doesn't make sense to me, so I appreciate the vote <laughs> of confidence. I'm here for it. Would I'm you like to throw anything it. into politics in the MCU this week, Danielle? I think just like this idea of Kang as the benevolent dictator, like that we just, that he's like, it could be way worse, right? It could be, we could have gotten the, the violent version of him that like what we are as political theorists reading as violence, which is like, the imposition of a reality on a like people or set of peoples yeah, is like not the same thing as like the physical violence. And that's essentially the, like that's the, the parallel that Kang draws like in telling us about all the other versions of him that are terrible. He's like, you should feel lucky that you got me. It's a little bit like you should feel lucky that like I, I as the, the dictator did not decide to shoot you in the head. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, I think, a a good way to put it. And this, too, is made explicit by the character, right? He says that you may hate a dictator, but something worse is coming. If you get rid of me, I can't be safe, all of these kinds of things. Yeah, and so, like, I take his point, but I don't like it. (laughs) Yeah, that's the right way to put it, I think. Let's get into the cave. This is our Our last last Loki cave. Our last journey into the cave with Loki. Yeah. Who's in the cave with us, John? All right, so we're finally, we've, I think, gestured and said this before (laughs) several points in previous episodes whenever we've actually gone to the cave with our friend Thomas Hobbs. Or maybe we did, actually, because I'm recalling that I told the tennis tennis anecdote about Hobbs on air before. So maybe we have been to the cave with Hobbs. You know what? Here's what I'll say. Even if we have been in the cave with Hobbs, which, like, at this point... I can't remember because we've also done some of these for the Americans and not for the MCU. This is, I think, like the 25th episode or something we've recorded. So we've been to the cave a lot of times. Been to the cave a lot. But also I think the fact that we're not sure if we've done this Hobbs in the cave, but we've definitely mentioned Hobbs in our discussions of Loki when we were pretending that we don't do political theory for these entire episodes. Yes. I think it just speaks to the fact that, like, you know, there's like the, the theoretical implications of this 
are maybe a little bit one note or or three note, right? Like we've got a lot of we wanted to do Play-Doh again, but we stopped ourselves. <laughs> You're welcome. I so, wanted to do Benjamin, which like also like we've talked about before. And we're doing Hobbs, which like those yeah. all sort of circulate around the same set of ideas. Yeah. Benjamin, as I told Danielle before the episode, like that's a too much of a slight on Benjamin to <laughs> in a conversation with this, with this show. It looks like we did Hobbs in American season one, episode six, trust me. Okay. With Amy Schiller. So producer Amy was our part of our last Hobbs discussion. Okay. Okay. So Hobbs here, this is really just an extension of the final point that Danielle was making in the politics and the MCU segment insofar as among the many things that Hobbs is doing in the book, the Leviathan, which is of course like a slight re mixing of other ideas he articulates in other works of his, right? Notably to Kive, um, among other places, is that in response to the state of nature in which the logic of the situation and the kind of atmosphere that is created by the absence of a common power with established, settled, written laws mm-hmm. needs people to compete with one another for survival, for reputation, for goods, and thus, that's the state of nature that is famously solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short, and perhaps the one Hobbes quote that everybody knows. And that what is needed is a leviathan, right? A power to come in, a sovereign authority to be established, to, in a semi or mostly totalitarian way, or an extremely authoritarian way at least, administer the body politic, rule over it, provided with everything from what it can and cannot be taught to things having to do with language and social meaning and common meanings of words to running an absolutist government. And thus, when we have Kang saying the options are either stifling order or cataclysmic chaos, that is the bargain that the figure of the Leviathan prevents to the people who would consent to establish a Leviathan in Hobbes. Yeah. I mean, first of all, tremendous gloss. And that was totally like off the dome. There was no prep that went into that. Oh, we love it. We love to see it. Um, I mean, I did write a dissertation chapter on Hobbes. (laughs) I should be able to do that. Well, it's like, it's deep in the dome, but it's still in the dome. True, 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 true. (laughs) It wasn't like you were reading us your dissertation chapter. It was just like freewheeling it. Yeah. Then there would have been some Ahmed and Deleuze along with Hobbes. Which we love, obviously. You know what? We got to get more Ahmed and Deleuze into into our American stock. Great. (laughs) <laughs> I'm going to put it, I'm going to put it in the random number generator list. Amazing. But to come back to your point, I think like the, the choice between chaos and order as like a Habesian choice or as the difference between like anarchy and anarchy as like poor, nasty, brutish and short and like the Hobbes's version of like surviving. Right. Because Chaos and order for Hobbes is is like death versus life, right? Yes. Are you dead or or are you living? And I think like to to think of which is exactly how, at least in terms of himself, Kang poses the question. Sure, right? Like it's it is a matter it's a matter of life and death for him also. But the matter of life and death for him is also like always already the matter of of 
like chaos and order for everyone else, right? That those things are collapsed into each other. And Hobbes is to your point, Danielle, and you had to confirm this was indeed correct. And I hadn't totally forgotten Hobbes uh, before, to before we started recording. Is writing in the aftermath of the English Civil War, yeah. and so you know we could probably extend this cave allegory to consider the first multiversal war that current king stop puts an end to. Yeah to the English Civil War and the role that that plays in kind of motivating Hobbes's political theoretical project. Yeah, and I would also just to dip back for a moment to your um, politics and the MCU insight around like Kang, Eliath, and nuclear weapons, right? Like Hobbes gets mobilized by people doing international relations all the time as like that A poor version of Hobbes. A poor version of Hobbes, right? That's not all, but many. For many, but like this, uh, this like choice between chaos and order, choice between life and death, like that is like how else to pose the nuclear question than like chaos, order being collapsed into life and death. Right. Yeah, and, and I mean, and, and I will say this because I'm just going to go down this rabbit hole. Um, is that Hobbes and also Locke both say that the closest thing that we have in the world that actually exists to the state of nature that they are theorizing, because it mm-hmm. is somewhat, but not entirely, theoretical or abstract or thought experiment for them. Yeah, it, are relations between states, right? And right. And they're more, the more racist actual example that they give are the relations it, of indigenous peoples. Yeah. Not the term they use, the term we're using on yeah. this podcast, the <laughs> relations of indigenous peoples to one another, which, right. they, which they understand to be a state of war. And of course, the depiction of that goes into justifying settler colonialism. I mean, all true. Yeah. <laughs> That's but, that that I'm not sure how to work our way back to the MCU. I was just like, let me say a thing I know about Hobbes. No, but I think like that that thing you know about Hobbes, I think there's probably we don't have to get super into this, but I think like there's a way to read the like converge the forced conversion of variants to like timekeepers who don't know their history like onto the like either Hobbes's or Locke's take on indigenous peoples, right? Like look at you. <laughs> I'll be here all week. <laughs> <laughs> so you've you've a little bit answered this question already with mm-hmm. some of your analysis so far, Danielle. But do you have any further thoughts you wish to offer either on what the existence of multiple timelines would mean in a Hobbesian political theory framework? Or what a state of nature is when the state of nature is temporal in nature. Yeah, I mean, like, I think the multiple timelines for Hobbes is, like, each timeline is, like, a a state in anarchy, right? But that's, like, I think how we would apply that idea. Yeah. I think in terms of the state of nature in temporality, like, that's a thing I'm less clear on because, like, the although like there are plenty of political theorists who debate this but for me the state of nature is a like best understood as a physical space as opposed to understood as a fixed point in time yeah and if i'm remembering to my dissertation chapter on hobbes correctly there's maybe a tiny bit engagement with some of the ideas about temporality in the state of nature which i like which i like translate into a question about affect 
Right, which like feels like the way that I would want to go with it. In fact, it uh, that's like, <laughs> when Danielle eventually write our Hobbs. Piece. I was just gonna say Hanley McMahon forthcoming. <laughs> <laughs> Not actually forthcoming, but like always already forthcoming. At no, the no. Same time. After the guns piece, we're gonna write this Hobbs piece mostly because you've it. written most of it, and we just need to like revamp Figure it a little it bit. Yeah, yeah. Figure out what, why, why. I'm here to revamp. <laughs> yeah. All right. Ah. Oh. We did we it. We did it. <laughs> the end of time. I st- and again, this is no offense to you or your contributions, but I still also want to say I did it. <laughs> Honestly, like the accomplishment is yours. <laughs> I mean, I think we got like eight or nine hours of Loki podcasting out of this. So we did get to talk for a long time to our good friend Lily Gorin, who's going to join us again, which is perhaps the best thing that happened this season. That, that are you calling me Plato or saying <laughs> that I only care about plot and stories? Listen, I walked that back. I was saying that you were getting near that. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, thanks to John for enduring this. Thanks to Danielle for enduring my being a hater. Barely. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I love it. Uh, no, you thanks- don't. It's okay. I don't love you it, don't but I, I love ha- getting to talk to you for a lot of hours at a time. So, like... I'll take it. You know, if this is the version I get it in, then that's fine. So our friendship has survived, Loki. Amazing. Uh, Thanks, as always, to producer Amy. Uh, Next up in the feed, you'll get American Season 2, Episode 6, Behind the Red Door. That will drop Thursday. And then the following Tuesday, we're continuing this journey into the MCU, but we're shifting gears and we're going to watch Moon Knight. Episode one, The Goldfish Problem. And thank you so much for joining us on Not Quite Great Books, a TV podcast. Thank you for joining us on another episode of Not Quite Great Books, a TV podcast created by Daniel Hanley and John McMahon, and indirectly, producer Amy. You can find us on Twitter at NotGreatBooksTV. You can email us at NotGreatBooksTV at gmail.com. If you have comments or questions that we might potentially read and respond to on air, subscribe, download, rate, review us, tell your friends to find us at Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, and Amazon Music, and Google Podcasts. We would like to thank Less FM for Electro Trend 60s, which is the music that you heard at the beginning and you are hearing right now. Until next time. Go play some racquetball. Did you have thoughts on that? <laughs> no. No. Right, and of course, Hobbes is writing in the context of the... English Civil War. Fuck, I can't believe I fucked that up. Um, you want to uh, start that again? Yeah. I'm, well, still, gonna give, just... I'm still gonna give you credit for reminding...